everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. She says at one point in that lecture, language can only arc toward the place where meaning may lie. And it ends on a note of hope for what can happen when you stop marginalizing the other, when you stop seeing the person totally as only different from you, but not connected to your humanity. That was Dr. Marilyn Mobley talking about Toni Morrison and the lecture she gave when she won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Morrison was the first African-American woman to win that prize, and the New York Times called her the towering novelist of the Black experience. I'm Alain Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. You may have encountered Toni Morrison's books on the bestseller list, or in a college class, or through Oprah's book club. Among her best-known works are The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon, and Beloved. Dr. Marilyn Mobley knows Morrison's books well. She is a former president of the Toni Morrison Society and Professor Emerita of English and African American Studies at Case Western Reserve University. Listen and learn from Dr. Marilyn Mobley why Toni Morrison is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are speaking today with Dr. Marilyn Mobley about the great, great writer, Toni Morrison. Welcome, Dr. Mobley. Thank you. It's good to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you with us. I know that you've done much work uh, studying Toni Morrison, who was an acclaimed writer and editor, and among her many honors, she was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for books like Beloved, The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon, 
and so many more. In your view, what was her singular achievement and what should she be remembered for? I thank you for that question. I always wonder about the word singular when I think about Toni Morrison. She always seemed larger than life to me. But for I think she should be known for being a phenomenal writer who made space for two things at once unapologetically affirming the humanity of Black people, especially Black women, and of critiquing the racial imaginary and its effect on the well-being of this nation. I think she just did such a wonderful job of holding both of those things in place, unapologetically affirming the humanity of Black people and routinely critiquing how race and racism operated in this country and she did it better than some. I think she'll also be remembered for being able to talk about these issues with language narrative and eloquence that had a kind of piercing clarity about them. Uh, she was able to talk about unspeakable things unspoken, as she called them. And other people may have tried, but she was able to get our attention in ways that other people could not. And I mentioned the word humanity, and I guess what I would add to that is complexity. Because it seems to me, before Toni Morrison, some of the representations of Black people were simplistic and lacking in depth. But after she began writing, many of us felt the complexity that we know to be part of our community suddenly came to life on the page, and everybody had to take note. Yeah, she not only moved us by the way she wrote and her work, but she certainly broadened our depth uh, in the way that you just said, depth of understanding. Now, you mentioned that she brought us in many ways the Black experience in America through her writing, usually, obviously, from a female perspective. So how did being a woman inform her writing or perhaps make it special in some way? I really like that question because I believe she recognized how in the works of other people, Black women were often marginalized or dismissed or minor characters. And in her writing, Black women became center. We were able to see ourselves in writing at the center of the story instead of as add-ons or as minor characters, as marginal characters. And even when she wrote and had male characters at the center, such as with Song of Solomon, the protagonist in that book, Milkman Dead, is a, is a man. And in one of her later novels, in the novel Home, the character Money is at the center. But even in those novels where men have more of a central role, which was different from most of her works, she still had women being critical to their lives and showing the importance of women, even in the character, in, even in the lives of men. And I just think for many women readers, that was important to understand that we were the center of our narratives, not always the center of somebody, not always the margin of someone else's narrative. And that was really important for her. And it was really important for her readers. And many of the critics talked about that. Often in my classes, I was teaching her by herself. Sometimes I was teaching her in a course for women writers. Often I taught her, of course, in a, um, in a course that was African-American literature or American literature. 
but it there was nothing like teaching in a course that was for women writers so that women could see how this woman writer treated our stories and our lives. So interesting. What was it that that drew you to her writing? Because you obviously can speak about her with great depth of understanding. Well, I will, I will say that the first thing that attracted me to her is probably not very literary at all, but it's the fact that she was from Ohio. She was an Ohio writer from Lorraine, Ohio, not far from my hometown of Akron, Ohio. And when I read The Bluest Eye and saw the, the name of my city in the novel, I said, oh, this is a wonderful writer. (laughs) (laughs) All things are local. That's right. That's right. So I must admit, you know, it's kind of a a shameless admission that I was attracted to the fact that she was an Ohio writer and a Black woman writer writing about small town life in one sense and also writing about what it was like to be a Black girl in America. I was just totally attracted to that. And even though she was talking about poverty and I didn't grow up poor and she didn't grow up poor, we knew poor people in our community. And that's partly what she's doing in that novel is saying there are people who are often other, who are other demonized, sometimes stigmatized and sometimes scapegoated. It was looking at the ways in which people in a community could scapegoat. And Even as a a college student, when I read that, I remember thinking, yes, I saw people scapegoated in my community, and she's really capturing how that works. But I know, if I'm honest, and I'm going to be honest, (laughs) I was first attracted to, oh, Akron is in her novel. Okay, well, then this is a good writer. Well, you know, whatever it takes, and look how it's propelled you into uh, being an extraordinary expert on Toni Morrison today. Was The Bluest Eye the, the first of her novels that you read? It was the first that I read. And I also was attracted in The Bluest Eye to how she made education front and center. My uh, degree at Barnard was in English and education. And so I was already interested in literature anyway. I, I just have always been a bookworm, actually. So Toni Morrison would probably say the same thing about herself. I was intrigued with how it talked about education and those Dick and Jane primers that we all, well, I don't know now if that's the case, but many of us were introduced to literacy through that primer. Like Toni Morrison, I went away to kindergarten knowing how to read and write. And in a couple of her interviews, she talked about that, coming to kindergarten, knowing how to read and write. And I did as well. I like the way The Bluest Eye, however, problematized that and, and said there are images that you get as early as kindergarten that deny your humanity, that make you feel less than if you're a Black girl. And I just thought it was so important. I quickly caught the bug. And so as soon as Sula came out, I, I read Sula because Sula was about female friendship. And many women can relate to this. Sometimes it happens in high school. Sometimes it happens in college. But Toni Morrison captured that phenomenon of women starting out the gate as very close friends and then going separate ways, sometimes because one goes to college and one does not, as it happened in that novel. One gets married and one does not. One makes life choices that are so different. And then the friendship gets frayed or intense in a way that it never had been before. 
And I just think she captured that so well. I, I was I was really drawn to that novel for what it said. I, I had seen it in my own life of having friendships. And once I went away to school, people weren't sure what would happen to the friendship. And Morrison just interrogated that with with laser focus. Now, I know she died in 2019, but if she had lived, she'd be 91 this month. Tell us about her childhood and her young adulthood. You already told us she grew up in Lorain, Ohio. But what was it about her growing up that turned her into a writer? I think that's a wonderful question because I don't know that she always knew she was a writer. But when I look back on what I learned about her life from my own reading and even in the documentary on her called The Pieces I Am, which came out the same year of her death, there was lots of fodder. There was lots of evidence that she would become a writer. There was a lot of storytelling in her home. Her mother um, sang in the church choir and was always at home singing. When she was a teenager, she worked at the local library and she... uh finally used to tell that she didn't she didn't really do her job so well because she they would catch her reading all the time. <laughs> she was supposed to be shelving books and she was reading. And so I would say as an English professor, for me that was she was getting prepared. She was getting prepared to write by being immersed in books and by being immersed in the storytelling tradition she heard in her home and the the ear for music that she got from listening to her mother sing. And I think all of those things prepared her to get ready to write, even if she weren't writing it. We do know that she began what became The Bluest Eye when she was a college student at Howard University, but it didn't become a novel immediately. It didn't become a novel until later. And I also think the fact that she was part of the Howard Players when she was in undergraduate school at Howard University. So there's an actress in Toni Morrison. And sometimes you can hear that in her audiobooks. I personally don't like audiobooks, but I have listened to her read. And there's some drama in her reading that says she was attracted to language and literature from several angles, from the sound of it, from narrative and language, and just for what could happen when you brought narrative and language and sound together on the page. I think she was intrigued with all of that. and. She had heard about and witnessed how racism acted in this country. Her father left the South and went North because of lynching. And she said she had always heard it was racial terrorism, but she had never heard what she called the clarifying details. Actually, until she went with us in the Toni Morrison Society to her father's home in Cartersville. And she heard the historian tell the story of how her father, George Wofford, left the South. He had heard about another friend who was scheduled to be lynched. And I always like to tell my students that word scheduled must have stuck in his mind, mm. that it was planned. That it was a planned event that people took delight in. Um, but in any event, the stories of lynching that he had witnessed and heard about made her father move north to Lorraine, Ohio. And so I think all of this history and family history and national history shaped her consciousness. And then her job as an editor at Random House 
gave her an opportunity to be on both sides of the publishing world. You know what I mean? So she was helping other people come into the spotlight as writers. Claude Brown, for example, she helped publish the autobiography of Angela Davis. And I think sitting at the table as an editor also developed her own ear for writing and for language. And her editor even said at one point he had to say to her, you need to go ahead and be a writer. And it took her a while before she claimed it. You know, so I think that's a gender issue that she knew she was writing, but she wasn't quite ready to call herself a writer. I think a little bit of timidity may have been part of it early on, but after a while, she just fully embraced it. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Were there particular challenges that she had to overcome? Well, I think I've mentioned a couple of them already. She had to balance being a single parent, um, which I think is important because sometimes people don't think of famous people having some of the same challenges that other people have. So she had a period when she needed her family back in Lorraine to help her with with 
her parenting. She had to deal with the um, challenges of manuscripts being rejected at first. Even though they had some acclaim, they didn't have the acclaim of her third novel, Song of Solomon. Those first two novels didn't. And so there was just the reality of sometimes you're going to be rejected. Sometimes you're going to realize you're in a male-dominated world and expected to write a certain way, and that's not the way you're going to write. And I think she had some challenges around that. But after a while, some of that began to drop away. As I said, she later began to embrace herself as a, a writer and knew that that's what she wanted to do. And the editing was was less attractive once the writing life really took full uh, force in her. Now, you knew her personally. Uh, tell us what she was like uh, as a person. And I also know that you're the founder and former head of the Tony Morrison Society. And perhaps you can tell us about that as well. Well, I'd like to clarify that I'm one of the founders. The actual founder of the Tony Morrison Society is Dr. Carolyn Denard, who at that time was at Georgia State, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Georgia State University. And uh, we met at the Conference for American Literature, the American Literature Association. And at that conference in 1993, this was May of 1993, Dr. Denard came to me and she said I was the first person she wanted to tell about this idea. She said, I think it's time for Toni Morrison to have a, a society named after her. And she would be one of the few living writers. Most of the societies are after writers who are no longer living, like Zora Neale Hurston and F. Scott Fitzgerald and so on. And I agreed with her that it was time. And we formed the Toni Morrison Society. I think at that time there were about 19 scholars at the conference who said yes, they agreed that it was time and we signed on. And we just began working after that to host conferences. That was a conference where she went with us and went down to Cartersville to her father's home. And we began hosting conferences and she came to every single one, including the one we had in Paris. Hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, there have been eight altogether. I'm no longer uh, on the board. I'm still a member, but I'm not on the board. In any event, the last one was uh, before she died, which was Toni Morrison and her life as an editor. But we had each of those biennial conferences scheduled so that she could be present and she was there. And it's at those conferences that we had a chance to get to know her a little bit better. And so we've had a chance to be with her strictly as a writer and as scholars. We would, at our conferences, we would always give out a book award. We'd have keynote speakers who were fellow scholars, literary scholars, scholars in the field of African-American studies. And we got to see that side of her, of course, the writer, the scholar, the public intellectual. We always got to see that. But when we had these conferences, we also had downtime with her. And so it was also rewarding at that downtime and when we went to her home, just to talk almost as sister friends. You know what I mean? Of course. And there was something very nice about talking to her and knowing that like me, I'm also a mother of two sons. We had these conversations about what is it like to raise black male children? And even back in the 80s, I recall, we had a conversation, maybe it was the 90s, we had a conversation about what we call the talk that Black women have with their sons or that Black parents 
have with your sons. And Joni Morrison said she made both of her sons put a fraternal order police sticker on the back of their cars. And I remember thinking, this is this is so important. It, it felt heavy on one hand, and yet it it brought in her humanity in a way I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of, well, like other Black women, she has to help her sons navigate what America is like racially. I hadn't thought about that. And as soon as she said it, I thought, I'm going to tell my sons to put a paternal order police sticker on the back of their cars. And so on one hand, I, I heard it in a kind of facetious way, and yet it was very, very serious. And it said that like other Black women, regardless of our status or our income or our education, we had to think about those things. And then there was just fun. She was just fun to be around. She always had a little something snarkly to say. (laughs) And we would look at one another and we would go, whoa. But I, I just liked it. You know, she wasn't she didn't have herself on a pedestal. And I can't imagine what it was like to be her student at Princeton. I, I can't imagine that I would get any work done for being in awe of her. But she was a teacher and she often talked about how she taught and what she wanted her students to accomplish. So I, I just think if we only know her as a writer, we're missing out. But if we only know her as a writer, that's the most important thing to know because she tried to capture her own humanity without being autobiographical. I think that's important. Sometimes people immediately want to know, well, did that happen to her? Did this happen to her? No, but she was a keen observer and a keen listener. What a privileged time you had with her. You talked about her uh, just now about being a teacher, and you are a teacher as well in terms of your professorship. And you assigned the Nobel lecture that she gave when she received the Nobel Prize, you assign that to your students. What is it about the lecture that you want them to know? Thank you for asking that question. It is known at my university that I taught every single class with that lecture. I don't care what the topic of the class was. I began every course once I had the lecture, once I had the recording with it, because I love the way it gave students an appreciation for the power of language and the power of narrative to tell difficult truths. And I love the way she took a global stage moment. She was at a moment when she could have talked about anything. And in that lecture, she actually talks about many of the issues that I teach, talks about what it's like to have an encounter with someone who's different from you. The young men in that narrative have an encounter with an older, I, I say young men, they were young people. I don't know what their gender now I think about it, but they had an encounter with an old blind black woman. And it starts as a kind of standoff, a kind of narrative standoff. And by the end of that novel, they have come together. They've become uh, almost friends, but they at least have a sense of appreciation for the other. And the way she uses that noble lecture to stage that and to load it, it, it's a lecture that's loaded up with ideas about how we other, how we marginalize, how racism acts, how sexism acts, how fascism acts. She gets so much of the political and cultural reality of our lived lives in that short narrative called the Nobel Lecture that I want my students to hear it because she says at one point in that lecture, 
language can only arc toward the place where meaning may lie. And that tells you the power of language right there. It says you're not always going to get it right, but it also says that language can be for good or for evil. And in that moment, in that lecture, she takes you all those places and it ends on a note of hope for what can happen when you stop marginalizing the other, when you stop seeing the person totally as only different from you, but not connected to your humanity. That novel ends on a note of hope for what language can do to connect, to create community, to create a sense of belonging. So they, they start as a standoff, but they end finally realizing that the, the lecture ends with, look at this thing we have done together. And I just think that is so beautiful. It's so delicious. My students used to look at me, I'm sure, and wonder what in the world is happening to her. But I just needed them to know that that whole lecture shows the power of language. People can start at a standoff. They can start as antagonists. But if they surrender to language and if they surrender to the power of the imagination and they surrender to the ability to see one another as community and interconnected and belonging, then there's a way that language can help us. Well, I feel like I'm a student in your class listening to the fabulous lecture you just gave about Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture. What a wonderful, wonderful lesson. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Now, if you could read just one of her books again, what would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. She's written 11 novels, and this question always comes to me, and it used to stump me. It doesn't stump me anymore. It's now beloved, beloved, beloved. <laughs> and, I, and, the, and the novel only had one title, Beloved. But I say beloved because even though it's a hard book and many people tell me, I just did a book discussion for the emeriti professors at my university last week. And many of them said it's too difficult. They put it down. They started it. But I love it despite how difficult it is because it's such a beautiful, eloquent, powerful statement about the institution of slavery. And I always tell my students the word is enslavement because it helps you understand something happened to somebody. To simply call it slavery sounds like it always existed. And while slavery is an old institution, even before it happened on American soil, I want them to know what enslavement meant. And I love the way Toni Morrison begins to take us into the interior lives of the enslaved people. She takes us into the interior life of a Black woman. And for me, that was important. You can't talk about American history without talking about the institution of slavery. And for a book to do something different from what Frederick Douglass did or any of the other Equiano or any other slave narratives, they didn't have a way, or at least they didn't succeed at showing you what is it like for a woman when your body is the site of production and reproduction, mm. your body is the site of rape. And when you've endured indignities of not even being able to marry your husband, but to have control over your life, surrender to the slave master, how it feels to live under those conditions. And so Morrison took us away from that linear 
historical account that we got in the slave narratives, which were very important narratives. I don't discount them at all, nor would she. But when she read them, she said there was a way they left something out. And there is a way that Beloved gets it, as hard a novel as it is. And then in addition to being a professor, I'm also a preacher. And as a minister, I love the way in the middle of Beloved, there's this character, Baby Suggs, who's a preacher, who takes the enslaved community to the clearing, as it's called in the novel. In Black history, there are places known as hush harbors. And to see how eloquently Toni Morrison put that in the middle of that novel, a novel that is so hard, that is so difficult to wrap your mind and heart around, but to have a place where she brings the community together and she says, okay, we're here in the clearing. Here, I want you to love your hands. I want you to love your mouth. I want you to love your neck and I want you to love your heart. And that whole scene that it's a beautiful sermon, number one, but that whole scene is an example of how Toni Morrison wanted to humanize a whole community of people who had been dehumanized, mistreated, scandalized, miseducated, and so on. She did something beautiful in that scene that I will never forget. And so the ways in which it treated masculinity, Paul D. comes back and reconnects with her as a friend. They talk about the plantation as sweet home. It wasn't sweet and it wasn't home. And so there are ways that that novel connects with issues that are in all the other novels, but it takes it to this very fundamental truth about American history that we want to deny. I mean, right now in our country, people are so divided on, do we talk about slavery? Do we talk about 1619, do we tell the truth about it? Toni Morrison has often said, there are things you can do in fiction that you can't do anywhere else. And so I think that's why I I love the novel. It, It just treats this very difficult topic. And I will confess, it took me a few times before I could read it all the way through. But once I read it all the way through, I loved it. And I also love that the daughter in that novel saves her mother when her mother is almost about And when Setha is almost about to lose her life, she's so consumed with the haunting and the return of the baby she killed in the form of a ghost and so on. Denver, the daughter, realizes she's got to go to the very community that had scorned her mother and say to them, I need you to come help my mother. My mother's about to die if somebody doesn't come help me. And so it's a beautiful scene of community again. And Morrison is always interested in the community of women and the role they play in our survival. She never discounts men. And some people sometimes feel that when a woman counts, focuses on women. But she wants to say there's a special role that women play, and there's a special role that community plays. And Beloved illustrates that. That element of community and the community of women and the healing community of women, especially in the sense of storytelling, shows up in all of her novels, but in Beloved, it, it has a special function because the very group of women who had looked down on Setha, who had, in a sense, stigmatized her, come to embrace her and participate in saving her. And I just think it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful novel. Well, you've certainly given us great insight into Beloved. I felt like I'm in lit class. It's just terrific. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our conversation, which is always a a sad 
moment, especially when it's been as exciting and stimulating as this one. You know, you've given us so much inspiration of Toni Morrison as she conveys it in her work. These are tough times, I think, by any definition. I wonder if you could give us a message of hope from her uh, for today and for the future. I think Toni Morrison would be skeptical of the notion of hope. It is natural, I think, to want to end on a note of hope. And I think in one of her essays called Home, she talks about a notion of home as a place where there is a sense of belonging that is both snug and wide open. And I just found that such a powerful uh, phrase that I began using it at my university when I not only was an English professor, but also I was chief diversity officer. And I think Morrison wanted us to always think of if hope existed, it was in the form of what home could be. And if home could be both snug and wide open, then there was hope for us. As long as there are people struggling for home to be snug, which means you have a sense of belonging, like it is a place for you, and it could be wide open, your imagination, as she says in Beloved, the only grace you could have is the grace you could imagine. I think Toni Morrison always wanted us to think of home as a place that wherever it was, a space that was both snug and wide open, where you could have a sense that you belonged and you could reach your full potential. I think she was always writing with the hope that a community that had been demonized would know that the future was, as the end of that lecture says, in our hands. But it's in all of our hands, not solely the hands of Black people. It's also in the hands of white people. Will we reach out to one another to create that idea of home wherever we reside, being both snug and wide open? I think she had some hope. She was very depressed, I think, often about how we were living out this thing we call democracy. But I think in that essay, Home, she was expressing the only hope she had as a writer, and that is that there would be what the imagination could do and what she could do in literature. But it was also a hope for us that we would get to that space of snug and wide open. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, for the insights into Toni Morrison's writings that you so eloquently conveyed. Thank you so much, Dr. Marilyn Mobley, scholar and friend of Toni Morrison. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. How fortunate we are to have Dr. Mobley give us those insights into the remarkable Toni Morrison. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, at Seneca Women, we often talk about the importance of amplifying women's voices. Toni Morrison gave voices to Black women who had gone unheard for generations. As Dr. Mobley said, Toni Morrison spoke about what was unspoken. She painted full, complex pictures of people who had been stereotyped and marginalized. Second, in books like Sula, Morrison reminds us of the richness and intensity of female friendship and how our friendships influence us throughout our lives. Finally, Toni Morrison gives us a unique perspective on the concept of home. Our home, says Dr. Mobley, 
is a place of both imagination and snugness. It's where we belong and the place where we can reach our highest potential. Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.